Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis. And this show is my way of peering into the minds of other composers and songwriters, trying to get a better picture of their creative process. In this episode, I talk with composer, guitarist, and podcaster, Anthony Joseph Landman. He produces two podcasts. One, called All the Cool Parts, highlights some of the best classical music of olden days and new music coming out. In his second podcast, called 1000 Recordings, Anthony and his friend Mitch are on a journey to listen through all the CDs listed in the book 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, and they highlight five albums per podcast episode. In my talk with Anthony, he explains his own music, and he tells the story of how he got over 350,000 followers on SoundCloud as of this recording. We also talk about what success means to Anthony as a classical composer. For him, it's not about writing like Beethoven. It's more about writing in your own era, in your own style. So let's get to my talk with Anthony Joseph Landman. Anthony, thanks for joining me here on Composer Quest. Thanks for having me. It's an honor having you on the podcast um, because... I had gotten into your podcast, All the Cool Parts, uh, a few years ago. Yeah. And I really like your attitude you approach classical music from, of trying to get it accessible to the masses. And I think your podcast does that. Well, thanks. And one of my favorite episodes is about the music from World of Warcraft. Right. (laughs) I've never actually played that game, but... (laughs) It made me want to play it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, definitely the most downloaded episode of that podcast, <laughs> which, I mean, it says a lot. I think it's great. I mean, everybody needs an in into classical music. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. for the current generation, a lot of kids are getting into classical music through video games. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of people in you know academia and more conservative types would really turn up their nose at that. But I th- I think it's great. I think, you know, and a lot of that music, I think, is really good music. Yeah. Well, in your other podcast that you've been working on, A Thousand Recordings, based on the book, A Thousand Recordings to Hear Before You Die. That is a really interesting concept for a podcast, I think. So you guys are listening through these thousand albums. How many have you gotten through so far? Uh, I don't know the number. I think the last album we did was John Coltrane. So we're just going through the book in alphabetical order. And so I think we're getting close to being done with the C's. <laughs> I, I'm not okay. sure how many albums we've been through so far, but it's been a lot. Yeah. I like that the first episode alone you have ABBA and <laughs> right. along with like Islamic African music and gospel music, and then ACDC. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what I, I love about doing the podcast, because yeah. that's always how I've kind of listened to music, and um, it's a great book. A, a, ter- a friend of mine turned me on to that book, and I really wanted an excuse to listen to all these albums, because I'm a music nerd, and I want to hear all this stuff, and uh, the best excuse I came up with was to do a podcast on it, and I was really glad that I could uh, do it with my friend Mitchell Davis, who I met a long time ago um, in in probably '93 or '94. We both worked at a record store, 
And he, Mitch, I wanted someone who did not have a music degree. <laughs> you know, I didn't want yeah. it to be two music professors throwing out a bunch of terminology that people didn't know yeah. and stuff like that. And Mitch, um, you know, he, he doesn't have a music degree, but he's incredibly knowledge, knowledgeable um, about music. And uh, he knows a lot of genres that I'm kind of weak on. And so I thought we would complement each other well. Yeah, it's a good pairing. Uh, your podcast got me thinking how important it is to have a setup to what you're listening to. It really can help you appreciate music more, I think. Like ACDC, for example, I really didn't like <laughs> that much. <laughs> um, but when I actually listened to your introduction to them, I'd never thought about their history or what an impact they had on people. And I, I could kind of appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And uh, at least you can appreciate it. I mean, maybe ne- you don't necessarily love it still, and that's okay, you know, but, you know, knowing more about anything increases your appreciation of, of whatever it is, you know, music or anything else. I really liked your piece, Rush. Yeah, yeah. Well, that piece was for a, a very unusual ensemble. So I'm playing an eight-string electric guitar, and the rest of the ensemble is um, alto saxophone, accordion, and electric cello. I had this distortion pedal called Metal Zone, and I'm telling you, it is the worst pedal in the world. <laughs> I, I hated it. It sounds horrible. So we threw it on his cello, and it sounded amazing <laughs> on his cello. You know, if you're a guitarist, I would not recommend the Metal Zone. But if you're a, ce- if you're a cellist, the Metal Zone, Boss Metal Zone, that's the way to go. I've always had a sort of populist mindset. <laughs> you know, I think I think in part it's because I uh, started classical music late, you know, in comparison to most people. I didn't go to school until I was 23. And before that, I was playing in a metal band in uh, Houston. <laughs> and uh, I came from that that mindset, you know, where you're playing your music for an audience and your music lives and dies by that audience. A lot of people that go to music school and go through that, you know, they never experience that. In a university setting, in a concert hall, you know, regardless of what the piece sounds like, people are going to sit there and clap. Mm -hmm. You know, no one is going to yell out, you suck from the audience. (laughs) Yeah. So I think I've always approached uh, composition from the standpoint that, you know, I really want to like it and I want to try to do cool and interesting things and challenge myself and challenge my audience. But I also want to get it out to as many people as I can, you know, and have as many people appreciate it as possible, you know, and that doesn't just mean people uh, in the classical music world. It means everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And you have a really successful audience now online of your SoundCloud followers. Yeah, how did pretty crazy. How did that happen? Yeah, that happened because they had decided to feature me as the SoundClouder of the day. Oh, cool. And uh, I know that I was referred to them by another person that got featured, a guy named Stephen Guthines, who's a good friend of mine. He's a film composer. And um, they had featured him like two weeks before. And then they asked him for recommendations. And then they featured me. And so I just thought, well, this is great. You know, I'll pick up some followers for a week or two and it'll be awesome. That was probably back in uh, April, I would say. And uh, it has not slowed down since then. Cool. So it's been crazy. Yeah, yeah. One fact that you pointed out in your blog that I thought was interesting is that you said you had 150,000 listens to your music in 2002. Yes. And someone had pointed out that more people listened to your music than people had heard Mozart during Mozart's lifetime. That's right. That That's just such a weird thing to think about. <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, it just kind of blew my mind. I never considered that. What do you think having all these listeners has done for your music career? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a hard thing to figure out. Um, I love that all these people are listening to my music and my music is getting out. I mean, being a contemporary classical composer that goes all the way through university and like I did and gets, you know, a master's and a doctorate in composition, the career path right now, everybody's trying to figure it out because before it was a clear path. You would go and get a doctorate and then you would teach, you know, in a university. Mm-hmm. That was fine up until maybe 2005-ish. But after Hmm. that, jobs just started to disappear and dry up. So people are starting to branch out into all sorts of other things. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I would still love to have a university job, but if I would have gotten a cushy job in a university right out of school, I don't think I would have focused so much on my performance you know, when you're not in school anymore, you don't have access to all the performers. And uh, it's really an advantage if you can play your own music. I was going to ask you about your guitaring and how do you think that has influenced how you compose? And does that also influence other instruments that you write for? knowing guitar in and out? Yeah, I think it has a huge impact on how I compose. When I was in grad school um, at Indiana University, you know, they were so focused on being a composer that I, when I was there, I barely touched my instrument. You know, I just thought of myself as a composer. I've never thought of myself as a performer until recently. Uh, I mean, there's there has been plenty of great, composers, you know, who are not performers. But um, I I think it does create a certain disconnect between the music and the performance of the music. You know, with me being a performer, and I I have that knowledge with a lot of pieces that I write that, you know, I'm going to have to play this. So it's got to be playable. It has to be practical. It can't be something that's going to take a year to rehearse. 
listening to your piece 11, I was thinking about how you notate that because you have electric guitar, lots of feedback effects that I honestly wouldn't know how to write down on paper. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you do stuff like that, I had to just notate it the best that I could. I couldn't really find an example. I think the part you're talking about is the part in the beginning, sort of toward the Mm -hmm. beginning. Yeah, so that's a combination of, so the electric guitar is distorted uh, with like a really heavy metal distortion and it has a sort of echo delay effect on it. And then it also has a wah, like a wah-wah pedal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also using the volume knob. So I'm doing these like swells from like no sound to like, if I was to put it in music terms, no sound like niente to fortissimo back to niente. So I have, if I remember right, I'll have like a whole note and then I'll have an N for Niente and then hairpin to Fortissimo and then a hairpin to Niente under the note, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then above it, I have the indication for the wah pedal. I think I used a minus for the treble side and a plus for the bass side of the wah. And then... While this is going on, there's a glissando notated and um, there's an indication, you know, to turn on the delay echo. So when the when the glissando happens, it sort of echoes through the delay pedal. So, you know, all these things are happening at once to create this one sound. Was that piece 11 inspired by the the knob that turns to 11 why you called it that or <laughs> i noticed there was 11 players too right so yeah i mean i went kind of crazy with the 11 thing um yeah it's for 11 players it's 11 minutes long you know i i use i use this big chord that um you know it was basically a stack of notes that used all 11 intervals and i mean i just went nuts with like the number 11 was there any other concept behind the form of the piece yeah i mean the form was really specific um i had a really short time to write that piece i had two weeks to write that piece Mm. so i came up with this really specific scheme in order to write the piece really fast and um i like to do these symmetrical forms where everything will pivot around a central point. So the central point in that piece is this electric guitar solo that's very punk metal. (laughs) Surrounding that are a bunch of solo sections for the instrument. So the the piece is a chamber concerto for this uh, chamber orchestra. And basically everything is symmetrical. The sections that come before the guitar solo all come back in reverse order 
but for different instruments. And so it's basically the same music, but the solo instrument changes and then the orchestration of the music changes. It's amazing what variety and what a difference in the music you can get just from changing orchestration around. Cool. With the same basic melodies and harmonies. Yep. teach composition well um i do have a uh, a job teaching during the summer at a uh, music camp in upstate new york called L- the, the uh, luzerne music center um it's a camp for kids and i teach composition and theory there cool so that's been i mean that's been great that's been one of the things definitely that's been keeping me going and uh yeah i'm just kind of looking for something for the rest of the year i mean right now you know, to be completely honest, during the year, I'm just a salesman at a music retailer right now. So I'm hoping, you know, I won't have to do that forever. But living life as a professional musician, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do, you know, and just keep on going and keep on writing yeah, and playing, you know, which is basically what I'm doing. So, yeah. Do you have any advice for young composers out there? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing that I try to get across, especially to these kids that I teach during the summer, is that you need to write the music of your own time and your own culture. And I think a lot of times when people start young like that, pretty much what they're playing for the most part is 18th and 19th century music. And uh, they have it in their head that that's what classical music is. And so they try to, you know, write pieces that are pseudo Beethoven or, you know, Mm -hmm. pseudo Mahler or, or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, I try to impress on them that all these great composers that they play and that they're trying to emulate, they all wrote the music of their time and their own culture. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't remember their names. You know, Mm -hmm. they were all groundbreaking composers and they all had a firm grasp on the pulse of their own culture and the the music of their own time. I had some uh, kid this summer that was like we were talking about really into video game music and like club music and techno music. And I said, you you should use that. Yeah. And he was he was stunned, you know, (laughs) that he, he almost didn't take composition because he thought that I was going to, this is what he told me. He thought I was going to make him write like Beethoven. (laughs) I said, first of all, (laughs) if you live to be a thousand, you're never going to out Beethoven, Beethoven. Yeah. But the thing is that I told him, I was like, if Beethoven were alive, he would never out Nathan, Nathan, you know, you have to find your own music and do your own music. If that includes influence from video games and techno and club music and dubstep or whatever, use that in your music. So, and then after that, I mean, it was just, he couldn't write enough after that, you know, and he wrote some really cool stuff. This question has come up before on my podcast, but 
What kind of music would Beethoven be doing today? Easy metal. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, Beethoven may be doing metal. I mean, it'd be loud so he could hear it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. (laughs) Whose music will people be listening to in 100, 200 years from now? Um, I. It's hard to say, I guess, because there's very just hard to say. so, so many artists. Yeah, and it's also, when we look back, like, say, 300 years, the music that we remember was from composers that would write music down on paper. I mean, there were a lot of, there's a lot of other music going on during that time, you know, and we hear a lot about troubadours and those kind of bards and these kind of things. They were sort of the pop musicians of their day. And of course, we have absolutely zero record of their music because they didn't write it down and there was no way to record it. Now, from the 20th century and you know to the present, we have this ginormous collection of recordings of music that is not written down that will survive. So now the people 300 years in the future are going to have this huge backlog of recordings mm-hmm. of folk musicians and rock musicians and hip hop musicians and metal musicians and and jazz musicians and they'll be able to like for instance you know if you take jazz as an example you know jazz is written down to a degree but they'll be able to really hear how the jazz was performed that's a huge problem in early music because in a lot of early music, uh, a lot of it is also written in a sort of shorthand like jazz is. And it's not clear that the performance style is a lot of times not clear. Like, how did they play this stuff? You know? Yeah. Like Strauss's waltzes, for example. Like, if you just played those straight, it would be right. a totally different uh, feel. Right. Yeah. Or if you go back to something like Monteverdi or something where he'll write pieces for voice and continuo and it'll be a very simple voice part and then just a bass line with like maybe some numbers under the bass line it's very close to a jazz chart you know and we know from people writing about music that that's not how it was sung we know that the melodies were highly ornamented and that the keyboard players would improvise elaborate accompaniments off of this simple bass line so that's part of early music and musicology is trying to figure out how this music really sounded and how, how they really perform this music. Well, it's a good thing there are music historians like you putting out podcasts about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of wraps up my questions for you, but I do have a challenge for you. Okay. In each episode, I challenge the guests to come up with a little bit of an intro theme for their episode. Wow, okay. I accept your challenge. (laughs) That does it for my talk with Anthony Joseph Landman. For more of his music, go to anthonyjosephlandman.com L-A-N-M-A-N There you'll find links to his podcasts, All the Cool Parts and 1000 Recordings. Now it's time for
Yesterday I got up early and I thought, well, should I work on the stuff I am supposed to work on or should I write a song? So of course I chose the latter. I came up with the melody and chords pretty fast and the lyrics came to me pretty fast too, which is strange. Usually takes me forever. One thing that's been helping my lyrics is this free Coursera course I'm taking online, Songwriting with Pat Pattison. They have another session coming up in October, if you're interested. But anyways, one thing Pat brought up is the perspectives of first person, third person, and the one I had never really thought about, second person. And second person perspective is when you talk about just you and you never use I. For example, the Beatles song For No One. Your day breaks, your mind aches, you find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. It never talks about I or me. So in the song I was writing, I thought I would try second person perspective for almost all of the verses, aside from the very last lines. So let's take a listen to this new one I'm calling Green Grass. You're okay with living poor You think it saves the earth You get high on clipping coupons Like your mother taught you first You go on about the merits Of an independent purse No more asking for a handout Cause you're fine Without me You're okay with all the space that cleared up in your bed With a blank white cloud beneath you, there's room to rest your head No storm brewing beside you, just a billion distant stars In a billion different futures, all without me Me, I've got problems more than a few But I never seen him laid out in bullet points Till I met you You tell me you will never love An angry bitter man Who leaves his can of soda Half empty in the fridge so when did all the good things get swallowed by the bad? Cause your memory's sharp when picking apart why you despise me. Me, I've got problems more than you think. But green grass grows with a garden hole. If you work out the kinks You're okay with love again Cause you found yourself a man He treats you like an angel And he fits into your hand But one day you will leave him This vanilla pudding guy And you'll wonder how you ever spent your time Without me. 
I'll probably do some editing of the lyrics, but my main intent was to just get words on paper. And I'm finding that that's more important sometimes than crafting the perfect lyrics right out of the gate. So that's it for this episode of Composer Quest. Thanks for listening. You can stream or download every episode for free at ComposerQuest.com. And there you'll find links to Twitter and Facebook to stay updated on new episodes. If you've been listening and enjoying the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Charlie at ComposerQuest.com. And if you can spare a minute, find ComposerQuest on iTunes and write a little review. Each review has a big impact on how they rank ComposerQuest in the search results. So hopefully with your help, others can find and enjoy the podcast too. I'll leave you now with part of a composition from Anthony Joseph Landman called Sonata 46. And I probably won't pronounce this right, but it was performed by Sandra Hanasuska on violin and Tomas Kandulski on classical guitar. You can find this recording and many others at soundcloud.com slash anthonylandman.